This episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw and Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. This episode is brought to you by Fair Square, your one-stop shop for vegan products online. They offer Canada-wide shipping and donate a portion of each sale to animal sanctuaries and animal rights groups like us. Check them out at fair, that's F-A-I-R hyphen square dot C-A. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 75 of the Paw and Order podcast. I'm Camille Labchuk, joined today by my co-host, Peter Sankoff. Hey, Peter. Hey, Camille. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well. Isn't this our, pretty well. Doesn't this count as our diamond podcast? I'm not good at this. I remember we had our wood anniversary. Was it wood? No, it was leather. We had our leather anniversary in terms of years, but now it feels like this is our diamond jubilee episode because I think 75 is diamond. I know nothing about any <laughs> of these anniversary <laughs> metrics. Me neither. And I I'm hope terrible by leather you meant pleather or mushroom leather did, or cactus leather or something. Did. Camille, you're revisiting. We had that discussion already. We already went oh through my the, God, okay. We already went through the pleather uh, issue. I'm checking it right now. I actually don't think 75 um, is diamond. I think it's 60 is diamond, and I feel so embarrassed now I, that I feel the need to check this. Um, <laughs> you should feel embarrassed. That is amazing. Major faux pas, messing it up is, your anniversaries. Oh, Jesus. Oh, it is. It is diamond occasionally. So they, they, I, I'm actually not crazy. Apparently, I'm looking right now. The 75th and 60th are sometimes diamond, but apparently it is platinum. No, that's 70. Okay. God, this is a real mess. I'm telling you. Like, I, I, I don't think there's unanimity about what these are. We're either diamond or platinum, but it's not an anniversary. So let's just drop it. Yeah. Anyway, 75, it's a milestone, whatever, whatever else it may represent. We're closing in on yeah. 100 and our visit to the whale sanctuary, by my estimation, it will be sometime next year. I think it'll be like around next spring, Camille. Very exciting. Which is, you know, fairly realistic, actually, for being able to travel again and, and do stuff out in the world. Yeah, we just need the whale so. sanctuary to open. That's the only problem. <laughs> but if it yeah. doesn't, if it doesn't, we will come up with some other themed trip, I promise. I'm insisting on Pawn or HQ doing a, a trip to celebrate. Well, I think they're on track, so we'll, we'll keep everyone tuned. So how have you been? Busy, really, really busy. This is my busy time of year. People who've listened to this podcast for a while will know November, December, March, April are like just the worst times of year for me. I have like multiple, I have all my usual deadlines, plus I have like extra deadlines related to exams and students, and it's just such a busy time. And I'm involved in a bunch of court cases that are really interesting, but really timing. So yeah, it's busy. I have a new client. Um, I haven't had an animal 
case in a while, but I have a really sympathetic client in a, a malpractice case that I think is worth taking on. So I've got an animal law case for the first time. I have another animal law case too, but we'll discuss that later. But uh, yeah, I'm, I have a new client who has a really unfortunate situation where her, her dog died needlessly because of some actions taken by a uh, a uh, physiotherapist, actually, an animal physiotherapist. Oh. Yeah, who used a... I per- you were going to say veterinarian. No, I, it usually is. And uh, no, it was an animal physiotherapist using a particular procedure. So it's going to be really interesting. I don't know a lot about this issue. I don't know a lot about the procedure, so I'm going to have to bone up on it. But uh, yeah, really interesting case. Okay. Wow. Well, keep us posted. Yeah. What about you? Well, yeah. I mean, busy is the name of the game lately. We filed the egg gig lawsuit. So Animal Justice last week filed a lawsuit against the province of Ontario for what we believe is an unconstitutional piece of legislation, which is the egg gag law passed last year. And uh, the basis for that claim is basically that it makes it an offense to go undercover at farms and slaughterhouses and to engage in uh, bearing witness type activities outside slaughterhouses that, involving transport trucks and a few other sort of related violations, we say, of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But the the focus of the the lawsuit is violations of Section 2B of the Charter, which protects everyone's right to freedom of expression. So that was exciting. It was, uh, you know, good to get that out the door. And I think it got a decent amount of coverage. There was a great piece in the Globe and Mail delving into the details and uh, speaking about how this affects undercover journalism and activists. A great column by Tom Wacom in the Toronto Star. Tons of letters to the editor about it. So I think it's really touched a nerve with the public. Well, I, 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 I hear what you're saying, Camille, but I read that Globe story and um, the Ministry of the Attorney General in Ontario said the law is just super duper. So I don't know what you're on about. Oh, right. They they believe that it was crafted carefully, carefully with the yes. interests of people's rights in very, mind. Very, very keen balance. It was very well balanced. That's what I heard. Yeah. Mm, well, we'll see what the judge has to say that. Well, that. You, but we as you know, hoping. as you know, Camille, I mean, if the ministry of the attorney general says it, it must be true. So there you go. Like a uh, problem <laughs> solved. Yeah, well, exactly. Let's hope the court sends a strong message that it's unconstitutional to outlaw these types of exposés in Ontario and other provinces. So, Camille, let's uh, since you've brought this up, can we give some sort of timeline? When can we expect the next stage in this uh, to take place? Like, what do we? I take it we're waiting for the government's response. Yeah, yeah, and you know, there's a number of steps that have to happen along the way. There's evidence that has to be filed by both parties. There's cross examinations, and then eventually a hearing date gets set. So, you know, I don't want to make any predictions, but we are thinking that it will get heard really um, probably until next year. No, I understand it's it's far off, but when is the, do you know the deadline for the government's uh, need to file a statement of response or defense? No, we have to work that out with them. So it's an ongoing process. Boy, it's a little more, little more fixed in Alberta. We have very fixed timelines for these sorts of things. I was going to say 60 days because like that's usually what you get. But anyway, cool. Ontario, very, Mm. very open-minded. I like it. Yeah. So I'm happy about that. And in other news, I was on CTV Your Morning last week, which is the new iteration of Canada AM. And I was on with Ben Mulroney talking about pandemic puppies, Mm. which is an issue that we are going to talk a lot more about later on. But I'll, I'll just say the conversation focused on how to ensure you're not purchasing from a puppy mill. Now, I obviously I wonder what the purchasing I wonder what the answer is. 
Don't yeah, buy dogs. I mean, you right. can you can not buy, buy a dog. Yeah, That's exactly. how you know that you're not supporting a puppy bill. You can rescue and adopt a dog. Well, you still have to but, buy them, actually. But yes, I, I take it you are technically paying for the expenses and the cost of the show. An adoption yes, fee. An adoption. Different from a, a purchase. It price. is. It is true. It doesn't seem that different to me when I adopted my little Chili because he was a small dog who cost about as much as I would pay through a non-reputable source. But nonetheless, I agree. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I do think it's worth. Even if the advice is always adopt, don't shop, I do think it's also worth averting people to characteristics of a puppy mill. So A, if they're advertising online, like through Kijiji, pretty much guaranteed it's from a puppy mill. If you can't look around the premises, if you can't meet the mother of the puppies, again, that's a huge red flag. So we talked about some of that and... Uh, we'll get into this later, so yeah, I won't dwell sure. on this too much, but it's it's just that I've been receiving so many emails lately from members of the public who are concerned about puppy mills, and I think this message really needs to get through to people. Well, so because we'll the whole to point of the pandemic, just to make one last point on this, like this is a problem all the time, but there's no question it has shot up during the pandemic. Like it, I, I don't know the statistics, but even anecdotally, the number of people I know who have bought a puppy during the pandemic is through the roof, and I sort of understand why I understand the desire for puppies, but like that is very worrisome insofar as pandemic puppies are concerned. Were any stats provided to you, Camille, or anything like that? No, I haven't seen stats either, but I do know, and again, anecdotally, that rescues and you know, adoption organizations are, are empty. Like they're very low on dogs right now. And that's great because it means people are adopting dogs, but it's not great if that means people get frustrated when they can't immediately adopt a rescue dog and they go to a breeder. So, well, we are, uh, the other, we are a satisfy your desire type of society, right? I want my dog the way I want it. Immediate gratification. It's true. Well, maybe they should get a bunny oh. instead, Camille, because like uh, I know that bunnies are available. I noticed that foster bunny is still hanging around your house there. That's been uh, what? How many months now, Camille? It's about three months. <laughs> <laughs> she is lovely. But, you know, actually, we've been waiting for her to get a spay date this whole time. So she actually had that spay date last Friday. She did great. I was so sad when she came home and she was all quiet Poor and she bunny. Hid inside her Poor carrier, bunny. carrier for a while. And I actually had to force feed her as well, which <laughs> she tolerated a lot better than I thought she would, but right. she wasn't exactly a fan. And she's still getting some meds with a syringe and she's just like pissed every time Poor I, bunny. I, Poor I grab bunny. her, but she's doing great. She's really, really sweet and she is available for adoption. So check out rabbitrescue.ca to learn more. Seriously, just think you can get Camille's bunny. Wow. What a feather in your cap. That would be like having an award-winning bunny by association, wouldn't it, Camille? Oh, it would be. She's really sweet. And if somebody I know adopts her, then maybe I can continue. Even better. Even better. We need a fan of this show to adopt Camille's bunny. What is her name again, Camille? I've forgotten. Her name is Maddie. If you feel like changing her name to Camille, I don't think Camille would mind. I think she'd be honored. So like that would be an option too. I think that would be just (laughs) awkward. (laughs) Don't call your rabbits after me. <laughs> uh, good stuff. Uh, and then, uh, Peter, you you made a little bit of a media appearance recently, didn't you? A little one. I was on the docket last week with my daughter, which was a lot of fun. Uh, we were talking about our new podcast. I should say, because these things are overlapping, by the time this episode is out, our episode six, we're only 69 behind upon <laughs> order and not catching up because we're also going every two weeks. Um, we are, we are at episode six and I am really excited. I can even announce it here, Camille, because like it's secret. 
secret, but by the time this comes out, it'll be out, that we have a very special guest for episode six. So, uh, Ariana Grande? No, I wish. God, that my daughter would implode if that happened, but uh, almost as good for, for lawyerly folk. Um, we, my daughter asked a question about judging, so we decided to go right to the source, and we have uh, Justice Rosalia Bella on our show for episode six. It's really exciting. Wow. Pretty cool, eh? Yeah, Supreme oh Court God. of Canada Justice. Okay, came why aren't you show. pulling these strings and getting Rosie Bella on our <laughs> podcast? What is this like your your second child you're just, podcast? You're now? just not my daughter, Camille. I don't know what to tell you. Like it's just, you know, she she's always gonna be number one. There's nothing you can do about that. Well, I'm excited to hear that. That's that's cool. Yeah, she it's going to be awesome a lot judge. of fun. It was a lot of fun talking to her. She was really open. She was really excited to talk with Penny. Penny asked her a lot of questions. It was, it was a lot of fun. Well, that's adorable. Well, and then in the last bit of news to catch up on, uh, some of you may have seen the Nature of Things episode last Friday called The Last Walrus, which if you remember the walrus and the whistleblower film last year that came out, it was a CBC documentary produced by uh, documentary filmmaker Natalie Bibeau featuring our friend Phil Demers, who's been engaged in a years long legal battle with Marineland after being a trainer there for many years. So this is sort of a follow up to that. And the first one was focused more on Phil's legal battle. The second one is focused on Smooshy the walrus with whom he developed a very special relationship. So it's an interesting piece. It delves into the ethical dimensions of keeping animals in captivity and the legal efforts to outlaw that. And uh, yeah, I encourage everyone to check it out. You can still see it by visiting the Nature of Things website. It was a great, great show. Fantastic, Camille. Now, I am aware that nobody, everybody knows already, having heard this, how excited I get about reviews. And we have one. We do have a review. Fantastic. So if you have not yet left us a review, we would love for you to add to our over 150 five-star reviews. And of course, the reason for this is that it helps people find the podcast if we get positive reviews. Absolutely. So Peter, do you want to read this one out? Yeah, I know. And it's really the hardest part for me, Camille, is not saying iTunes anymore. It's so annoying because iTunes doesn't exist. <laughs> it's podcasts. I find it actually, I'll be honest with you, it's a lot harder to leave reviews now because finding the website to do so is really tricky. And I say that because I'm sometimes looking for reviews because for my other show as well. And it's like, I don't think, I just don't think it's as intuitive to go to the podcast page because I don't even know how to find that online. I don't know. I'm sure our tech savvy listeners are laughing at me because I'm sure it is probably just easy, but I find it less easy. So anyway, we did get a great review from I don't know if the T is silent. I'm going to assume the T is silent. I'll say Jitski 8 because there's a T in front. And they called us smart entertaining, witty. Oh, Camille, we are so witty. Informative, a must for all animal lovers. I couldn't agree more. Jitski 8, thank you so much for your kind review. Lovely. And another way to support the podcast is by becoming a Patreon supporter, and you can do so for as little as a dollar a month. Now, Patreon is a platform where you can support your favorite creators, including quite a lot of podcasts. And we'd love to thank our new Patreon supporter, Joshua Switnicki. Thank you, Joshua. Thank you. We have Patreon prize tiers as well. So we're not just asking for your support for nothing. Well, obviously you get this great podcast, but if you support us at the $5 a month level, you will get a mail card to say thanks. And you also get a pawn order sticker, which I love those little stickers. They're super cute. 
$20 gets your choice between an official Paw and Order mug or a t-shirt. And I can tell you, we're recording this on Zoom so I can see what Peter's wearing. He's wearing that t-shirt and it's a good looking shirt. I know. It's just, it's a shame. I usually drink, you know, like one out of every two days I use my Paw and Order mug. It just happens to be in the dishwasher right now. So I was thinking I could do both, but I do have my shirt on. And if you like that shirt, you can actually just buy one too at shop.animaljustice.ca. Um, and if you're supporting us at the $10 a month level or more, you get a 15% discount on our entire online store, including that awesome shirt. Fantastic. Now, Camille, I didn't want to let the moment pass uh, without mentioning, although I skipped over it in the show notes, that uh, the Animal Law Conference is just around the corner. Can you believe that? It's coming on in the fall, but submission deadlines are right around the corner. Yeah. So we are hosting the conference again. It's going to be virtual this year because we're not really sure what restrictions are going to look like in the fall. And I kind of suspect that mass events are going to be the last thing to come back. But the event has taken place October 1st to 3rd online. And if you want to apply to speak at the conference, you have the opportunity to do so until Friday, April 2nd. So this year's conference theme is animal law in an interconnected world. In recognition of the, you know, the tremendous conversations we're having about the place of humans in this world and the fact that animals are essential to many of those conversations, whether we're talking about viruses, whether we're talking about you know, the breeding of viruses, the impact of those on people like slaughterhouse workers, there's all sorts of conversations happening. And we would like to be part of that. And we'd love you to be part of it too. So check out CanadianAnimalLawConference.ca to learn more and apply to present. Fantastic. Now, Camille, today we have as our topic of the day, we're going to talk about a host of animal cruelty cases making headlines, and we will get to those in due course. So you won't be hearing about any cruelty cases in the news, but there is plenty of other news, including, regrettably, a lot of movements on the ag-gag front, but this time at the legislative level. Why don't you fill us in? That's right. So we've got some Manitoba news and some federal news. So Manitoba, you may recall, they put forward three bills in the fall that we thought were probably going to be egg gag like Now, in a bizarre and undemocratic quirk of Manitoba legislative procedure, they weren't actually required to show anybody that includes the opposition members or the public what was in those bills until, you know, sometime later. So finally, they revealed the contents of those bills. And we see that two of them are pretty concerning. So we've got Bill 62 and Bill 57. Bill 62 is the Animal Diseases Amendment Act, and that's an egg-gag law that um, is dangerous for farmed animals and we believe probably violates the right to free expression and peaceful assembly under the Charter. So similar to Ontario's Bill 156, Bill 62 would make it an offense to interact with farmed animals, which could silence people who protest on public property outside slaughterhouses and document poor conditions inside transport trucks, so directly targeting members of the animal safe movement. And the bill could see people actually jailed for the simple act of providing food or water to a farmed animal without permission, even if that animal is clearly showing signs of thirst and distress. So not great. It's amazing how like what we're seeing is really interesting. And I say interesting in a, in a negative way, obviously, but it is very interesting how each of these bills has their own particular quirks. It's like they're all around the same theme, but they all use different measures. And I'm just curious how much these measures are designed to get around problems of unconstitutionality because they each create their own problems. Like that'll be really interesting that that particular clause. Um, and, and it would be 
it would be really interesting to frame, I'm trying to think of how to frame the constitutional challenge because instinctively that seems overbroad to me, but I'm just wondering what the interest is uh, at stake, right? What, what's, the, what's the constitutional interest to protect an animal's ability to live? Well, you know, interestingly here, I think, again, um, it, it's very similar to the case that we just filed in Ontario, which targets similar provisions in Ontario's law, preventing people from doing any activism outside slaughterhouses. So if the argument is that um, people have been able to show the public the conditions inside transport trucks by getting up to those transport trucks, you know, respectfully, while on property, without sure. interfering with them, yeah. and filming those conditions inside, then I think there's a strong... Uh, free expression challenge. Sure. But I was thinking more of like, I agree with that, that that is correct. But I was just thinking about whether there's another way to craft the challenge. The problem is with this, and now we're getting into the weeds a bit legally of these negative positive rights, because it seems to me that if you prevent people, because I'm just reading, I, I'll be can candid, I haven't looked in detail at the bill, but I'm just reading from what animal justice says. And the part that sort of interests me is the part that prevents people from potentially, you know, rescuing peep animals or, or, or interacting with them in a way to save them. And I'm just wondering if there's a way to structure a freedom of conscience challenge, but I just, I, the worry is the negative positive right thing, right? It's like, it's, it's a, it's a restraint, but maybe, maybe there's a way to do that because I think that protecting that impeding on people's ability to act ethically to save animals could be in itself problematic, but that's just, honestly, that's an early thought. That's what springs to mind. Yeah, well, no doubt these bills are going to be examined closely. Uh, if you're listening and you're in Manitoba, and I'll get to Bill 57 in a minute, but you will have an opportunity to present before the Manitoba Legislative Committee that's going to be studying these bills. So you can you know, contact us if you want help signing up to do that. But we are encouraging everyone to have their say and make sure that the legislature knows that people don't think this is okay. Now, the second bill, Bill oh, 57. Oh, God, that's a biggie. I'm just looking at that now. Ooh. Critical infrastructure, no protests. Good luck on that. Yeah, this is pretty bone chilling, wow. to be honest. When I read it yesterday, it only came out yesterday. We're recording on a Tuesday, so it came out on a Monday. Uh, it made me feel like ill, Peter, just <laughs> thinking about the extent of the uh, violation of people's charter rights I, and I, the extent to which governments are going to try to shut down people from expressing that, themselves. This is, this is, this is, I am literally having my first look at this as we speak. And let me just say that this is insane. Like I, I cannot see, like, let me just say that I'm not, I, I think there are weaknesses to every ag gag bill that's gone up. But this is literally insane. It lets them designate something as critical infrastructure and then stop protests. It's, it's, I don't see how that's possible. Yeah, so let me just explain in a little bit more detail what it does. The, the bill, a schedule to the bill, sets out critical infrastructure, which the government says is infrastructure that is, you know, necessary or important to ensure the, you know, health and safety and well-being of people in Manitoba. Uh, health, safety, security, or economic well-being of Manitobans is what it says. Now, that list includes farms and it includes slaughterhouses. And what the bill does is it enables an owner or operator of one of those facilities to go to court and get an order saying that people can't protest within a, quote, critical infrastructure protection zone. So people can be prohibited from entering it, prohibited from engaging in specific conduct within it and uh, prohibited from blocking others from accessing the zone. So, you know, this is, this just cuts the heart of what it means to be a, you know, democratic engaged citizen in the society involving people's free assembly rights, free expression rights. It's pretty chilling. And the extent to which it can be used to protect the farm industry is terrifying to me. Yeah, well, it like what I think they would argue 
perhaps with some success, is that the order can't be issued without the court, right? So the court is effectively placed in the position of guarding these types of things. And in theory, in theory, the concern about, you know, if you have faith in the courts to make these orders on a case-by-case basis, which I don't like, and we could get into a discussion about why that's problematic in depth. I don't think you fix flawed laws by by sticking a judge in the middle of the flawed law, right? I think that still encourages way too much uh, potential breach because I just don't trust the court system to be able to deal with this correctly. But I think that's their idea is that the order still has to go through a court. Though I notice that they can make 10-day orders. And believe me, in these things, Camille, timing is everything without notice to any parties affected. So the court can just issue them on an ex parte, ex parte, God, I wish we had our Latin word of the day like we do in my other show, um, an ex parte meaning without, you know, without notice to the other side basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of troubling stuff in here. Uh, we'll see what happens at the committee. I mean, the conservative government in Manitoba does have a majority, so I don't see that they have much incentive to amend this, but maybe constitutional experts will be able to convince them that it's uh, a step too far. So we'll see. We shall see, Camille. Boy, that is just (laughs) exciting times to be alive, isn't it? We're getting hit with all this legislation that's going to require all this constitutional uh, 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 litigation, which I think is really unfortunate. I wish governments were a little bit more uh, responsible towards the needs of of people and, and and the freedoms of people to exercise their rights. It seems like we're just in a period where shut it down is the is the answer to all problems. Maybe it's the pandemic, Camille. Maybe this they're just. Maybe, I mean, I don't want to go down the conspiracy rabbit hole that some people think about seizure of freedoms, but boy, I'm telling you, when you see bills like this, it really does give me concern about the government's willingness to reach out and 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 infringe upon legitimate freedoms of ordinary Canadians who are unhappy with the way things are being done. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that one. On that note, let's talk about Bill C-205. So that's the federal ag-gag style legislation. Now, again, this is a little bit different. And as you mentioned, Peter, all the ag-gag bills have different permutations. None of them are identical. But what this one does is it amends the Federal Health of Animals Act so that a person who enters a facility, a farm, without lawful authority or excuse where animals are kept, uh, knowing or being reckless as to whether entering could result in the exposure of animals to a disease or toxic substance that is capable of affecting or contaminating them. So what this is doing is they're being clever about it, right? They're, they're saying that people who, you know, might do farm occupations are covered by this. Um, so they're targeting conduct that's already, you know, trespassed, so it's not completely lawful to start with. And they're essentially giving themselves another tool to be extra punitive towards people who enter to do farm occupations or lockdown for the purpose of publicity or exposing animal abuse. Now, the <laughs> the the penalties available for a breach of this provision are um, immense. So on a first uh, offense, summary conviction, a fine up to $50,000 or six months in prison. Indictable offense, fine up to $250,000 or two years in prison. And, uh, you know, that's huge. Yeah, it, it is huge. The only, the only thing I'll say is to their credit... 
they have not made it a strict liability offense like a lot of the provinces have with their act. So I'll give the feds a tiny bit of credit to say that a person who really doesn't know that this is a contamination possibility, the sort of innocent protester who really has no awareness of that will will not be, should not be convicted under this law. That's the only uh, tip of the hat I'll give them. Yeah. Now, you know, in case anyone thinks, well, this sounds pretty reasonable. I mean, I, I agree. We don't want animals and farms or anywhere infected with diseases or toxic substances, but it's a solution in search of a problem. There's never been a single documented well, case of animal activism. Yeah. Animal activists do not have a track record of introducing diseases into farms. That simply has not happened ever to my knowledge. Uh, we know that diseases do regularly enter, enter farms due to lax biosecurity protocols, due to the intensive nature of farming. There's a number of reasons why that could happen, but it's not because of animal activists. Right. And I just will say this. I can tell you right now, Camille, I probably should have told you this when you asked me my thoughts on the bill last week. I apologize. I've been really busy. Um, the thing that can concerns me is that there's no, God, I'm using a lot of Latin today. I apologize to all our listeners. There's, there's really no actus reus. So what's going to happen on this is what worries me about this is that you're going to have farms starting to slap these things on all their doors, right? That they're just going to say that exposure to do this will expose them, whether or not that's actually true. Do you follow? Because then those notices will provide the mental requirement necessary to convict, even where there is no exposure to disease. Like you follow me? Cause that's, if you look at the way that the wording of this is no person shall enter a building in which animals are kept. Okay, there we go. Knowing or being reckless as to whether entering such a place could result in the exposure of disease. So the actual exposure of animals to disease is not really a part of this on the wording of the section as it's currently stands. And even though that's true, even though all the headings of this are exposures of animals to disease, exposure of animals to disease, the problem is that exposure is in the eye of the beholder. You're going to hear many times, because I've heard these cases as well as you have, Camille, that any introduction of a foreign substance, any like anything can expose animals to disease. Like even if, even if the protesters went in in hazmat suits, which again, is not far-fetched, right, Camille? Because I've seen those. No, they do that, they all, do the that all the time. They go in in hazmat suits. I guarantee you, you will hear from the farmers. I've read enough literature to know that anything, anything, we don't know. Remember? Do you remember this? This came up in the Anita Krein's case. Like, we don't know anything. We don't know. We don't know. Like, this is going to be. She could have been giving them poison instead of water. It could have been anything. And they don't have to prove anything. That's the thing. They don't have to prove it. They don't have to prove that there is any actual exposure. And the focus in the case will be exclusively on what the protesters knew. And if there's enough notices saying any entry on this, any all they have to put is any unauthorized entry will result in increased exposure to disease. Boom, there's the mental element. So that concerns me. I would like I would like this slightly better if they could at least show that there has to be real exposure to disease. It has to be a proven link on the part of the prosecution. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and another interesting point about this is it says no person shall without lawful authority or excuse enter a building, etc. Now, isn't it interesting that this obviously doesn't it's not intended to apply, apply to farmers themselves who 
are lawfully there. So a farmer can lawfully enter a premises and knowingly or recklessly expose animals to a disease or toxic substance. It would not be captured by this. So it's specifically targeting other people. Now, wouldn't we think if it's important to protect animals from these types of risks, that's important to protect them no matter what the source is? Yeah, I'd have to read the rest of the Health of Animals Act. I wonder if there's uh, any other kind of neglect provision on the part of the farmers or people who work on a farm. But I agree without that, that's that's concerning. Yeah. What is the, oh, there um, we are. Anyway, you know, can I ask a question again? They've got their usual, uh, they've got their usual, uh, you know, let's go after any group that does this with massive fines, right? That's section 1.2, $500,000, $100,000. Again, the same crackdown on everybody else who does this, right? That's just designed to get the groups themselves and just render them, you know, incapable of existing. Um, what is yeah. the, uh, who is the sponsor and is this likely to go ahead? Does it have the support of the government? Yeah. So the latest on this is it, it's the sponsor is John Barlow. He's the conservative agriculture critic. And um, his writing actually contains the turkey farm that some protesters went to a couple of years ago. It was sort of one of the original lockdowns. Uh, and the status of the bill at present is that it passed at second reading. Uh, disappointingly, the NDP all voted for it, um, as did the Bloc Québécois. The Liberals opposed it. So it's going to the Agriculture Committee for a study. And I know a number of people are lining up to testify. So, you know, at this point, if you want to make a difference, I would suggest contacting your MP, but also contacting the leadership of the NDP and telling them that you think it's uh, important that they should actually oppose this later on. Well put, Camille. Well, let's get to our last story before our main topic. It involves uh, some prison farms and the just oh so good idea of, uh, you know, adding more factory farmed or farmed animals to uh, to prisons. Yeah, no, this is actually a bit of good news. In our last episode, I interviewed Calvin Newfeld of Evolve Our Prison Farms and Dr. Amy Fitzgerald. They had just co-written a report on why prison, factory, goat and cow farms are not a good path for the rehabilitation and assistance of people incarcerated in those facilities. Now, uh, pretty soon after that, we actually got some good news from the Correctional Service of Canada. It announced that it's suspending its prison farm goat operation at the Joyceville prison temporarily. That's what they're saying right now. Um, it's not a complete victory. They still have active cow dairy farms at those facilities, but they are not moving ahead with this 2000 plus goat farm uh, facility for now. And they're blaming this on financial pressures caused by the pandemic, which, you know, fine, whatever their excuse is, so long as they're not moving, I think that's a really good thing. Um, it's not a complete victory. They're saying that this is a temporary pause, but in my experience, these things often turn out to be permanent. Uh, it doesn't seem like that excuse about the pandemic causing financial pressures is perhaps the full story because everyone's known about pandemic related financial pressures for about a year now, and they're only coming out with this at this point in time. So we'll see. It's good to keep the pressure up, but it's still a bit of good news. We can always use some good news, Camille. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, that That is the good news. We're about to uh, get on to our main topic, Camille, which I think will contain a mixed bag of mostly bad news. So I'm glad to have some good news to sort of finish us off in this segment. Have you heard of Fair Square? 
They're a vegan online store that features a wide variety of Canadian-made and ethically made products. Fairsquare is run by vegans for vegans and donates a portion of each sale to animal sanctuaries and animal rights groups. And you get to choose right at checkout who you want to support. So whether you're looking for vegan cheese and meat, snacks, fair trade chocolate, sustainable clothing, gift baskets, or more, Fairsquare has it all in one simple shopping experience and ships Canada-wide. You can find them online at fair-square.ca, that's F-A-I-R hyphen square.ca. And as a Pond Order listener, you can get 15% off your next order by using the code AJ15 at checkout. Yeah, so we're going to move on to our main topic, which is uh, an analysis of three recent animal cruelty cases that have been in the news. And we're mostly, you know, I should say a caveat early on, we're mostly discussing these based on news reporting. For the first two cases, I have not actually read them. Neither of you, Peter. We haven't uh, received a copy of those decisions. So we're going by what was reported. But there seems to be enough there to make some comments. Which is always, always, it's a good caveat, Camille, because it's always... I always treat what's reported with multiple grains of salt. I've just read, I've read too many reports of my own cases <laughs> that are littered with errors to, unless it's literally a direct quote, I'm very hesitant to, you know, we, we have to have that caveat at the outset. And that's nothing against the journalists, by the way. I actually think journalists just don't have enough of a legal background sometimes that they misunderstand nuanced points. In fact, I get call. I got a call from a journalist recently about a case and they asked, blah, 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 blah. And they, they wanted to put it in a particular way. And I'm like, well, you've actually inverted it. And the inversion is significant because it makes it sound more significant the way you're saying it than it actually is. In fact, a great example now that we're segueing, I've segued, Camille. Sorry, just to get into a total non-animal law segue. If you want an example of this, it's in the Anique Manassian case out of Toronto. I'm telling you, I was outraged, and you may have seen this on Twitter if you follow me, about the way in which this was reported as if it was some autism is now open to mental disorder cases. And it that could not be farther from the truth of what the case actually says. Literally, it is. It is. It says nothing about that. The judge just points out that autism qualifies as a mental disorder on the legal test. The ability to raise autism as a mental disorder defense has not changed one iota. And as the judge made it clear, it's going to be really difficult to show that autism deprives a person of the capacity to commit a criminal offense. But you read the Globe and Mail, and it was like the doors are blown open to autism. And I'm like, that is just nonsense. That is just completely not true. Anyway, sorry. Oh my God, I know. We could spend an entire episode talking about all the ways that the you know, media doesn't necessarily appreciate the nuances of legal decisions and legal arguments in court. It's a yeah, so, world so, legislation that's So presented. we have to keep that caveat here that we are going off of the way in which it's been reported in, in the media. So yeah. Yeah. So let's start with discussing the Pico case out of um, Newfoundland and Labrador. So a man named Robert Pico owned a number of beagles and he was charged with animal cruelty for allowing them to get into a pretty troubling condition. Now, I I should warn listeners that if you click on the link posted in the show notes, you're going to see a picture of a very thin beagle that might be disturbing to you. So if you don't have a stomach for that, don't click on the link. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it is a really troublesome case. And again, it's really interesting, just as we're talking about the media, Camille, the, um, do you notice that the, the headline in the, in the article is Newfoundland Department of Justice says it can't intervene. Newfoundland Department of Justice says it can't intervene. There has been an acquittal. I've read the story, Camille. I don't see anything like that in there. It seems to me like... I, I think I think the difficulty here is that it's sort of being framed as in like maybe the Department of Justice can intervene in the decision itself and just like unilaterally overturn it, which I, I obviously no idea. is not how it works. But later on in the story, the Crown who was involved in the case does say that he's seeking a copy of the decision and will examine whether there's any grounds to appeal, which of course is the appropriate route right. for seeking to overturn a decision. I mean, it's funny. We had, I swear to God, we did that whole rant about the media and I was not even thinking about this. But as soon as I looked at the headline, I'm like, Newfoundland Department of Justice says it can't intervene. I'm like, well, they can't intervene because like they don't have the authority to just overturn the decision. But like, it seems clear from the story that there is the thought of appealing. There's nothing in there that says they're not going to appeal. No, no, absolutely. So, um, yeah. So, you know, essentially these, he, he owned four beagles. He had some difficulties caring for them for a variety of reasons. It seemed like he was, um, put in jail at one point and, um, you know, perhaps tried to contact a rescue group to help them. But bottom line is that the beagles, uh, became, you know, obviously from the photos where you can see their lips, ribs literally sticking out, the beagles became extremely emaciated. A veterinarian who examined them scored them each a one out of five on body condition scale and noticed that two of them had skin infections. Um, it took them two months to recover from this. Thankfully, none of them died, which frankly sounds like a miracle. But uh, yeah, so the man who had owned these dogs was charged with uh, criminal offenses in relation to this conduct. And the judge decided, Peter, that um, his behavior, again, this is what's reported, his behavior didn't meet the definition of reckless in the context of criminal charges. And so she acquitted him and said a conviction was not possible. Yeah, and a couple of notes are interesting about that. First, it's, it's really interesting that this point about the animals recovering is gonna come up in our later discussion of one of the other cases, because if I have a concern, I have many concerns about this case, but one of them is this idea that when animals recover, they're just fine. Like the idea that, do you know what I mean? If there's no lasting injury to an animal, there is less likely to be a conviction. It's sort of like, and this comes up in the Chen case that we're gonna discuss later, this idea that, well, the animals have all recovered and gone to a new home, so like all well and good, right? Because, you know, they're animals and they don't suffer long-term trauma. Uh, take it from me, the owner of a Chihuahua rescued from Texas, that my do dog suffers immense anxiety and has huge reactions to certain type of people who I uh, imagine are very close to the people that abused him in his earlier life. Like the idea that there's no long lasting damage or trauma is just the justice system's way of blinding itself to the fact that animals suffer in different ways. So before we even get to the decision, it's always a concern to me when there's this, well, the animals are good by the time of trial, right? So why bother punishing anyone? Because like everything's been solved. 
And when we talk about the recklessness standard, you know, it is true. That is one of the flaws of our animal cruelty legislation that we've talked about many times, this ridiculous need to show that the the accused has some sort of subjective awareness of how badly the animals are suffering. That is our stupid willful neglect provision. Um, I am Oxymoron. Yeah, it, it's totally ridiculous. There is, I, I stress again, because Camille, it's been a long time since we talked about this. I think I, I remember going through this with uh, Sophie Gaillard as a guest, like way back in the early 15s or something of this 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 paw and order where we went through the step-by-step of the test. But just to reiterate, there is no crime in the criminal code, not one aside from animal cruelty that pairs the concept of neglect with the concept of mens rea. And the re- that's, fuck, that's three Latin terms I've used in this show. It's terrible, Camille. I, I'd be excommunicated on my other shows. So it's terrible. Um, mens rea being the mental awareness of the offense. But the general idea of neglect crimes, like just to pose one, there's many in the criminal code, but say dangerous driving or criminal negligence. The idea is that you're punishing for the neglect itself, for the massive failure to live up to your duty when you're driving or when you're taking care of children or whatever. You don't have to know that you're doing it because it's ridiculous to pair the concept of negligence with awareness. But for animals, the lowest of low in the criminal code, um, willfulness is required. And many accused persons get off simply because they say, well, I didn't know they were suffering or I didn't know they weren't eating enough or I didn't know this or I didn't know that. The basic idea being that you can neglect all your animals under the criminal code so long as you do so in a way that like pays no attention to them. Like that's literally what the code allows. Just go buy a bunch of dogs, like forget about them, you know, completely stop feeding them and it's fine as long as you're not like intentionally trying not to. You just kind of forgot. And, and, and to be clear, I'm a big proponent, as I know you are, Camille, of mental elements in the code. We just spoke about it with respect to the Health of Animals Act, where I gave the government kudos for including a strong mental element, right? And I think that's true, that generally speaking, we don't want to punish criminal acts without intention. But the whole purpose for creating a certain range of neglect offenses is to recognize that where you're in a duty of care to other individuals, or in this case, animals, you can't always require an intentional mental element. There has to be a way to protect those vulnerable beings. It's again, it is just an absolute, it's nothing short of a legislative anomaly with historical overtones that that is why we have this ridiculous willful neglect provision. And and I'll just say, and you know this much better than I do, Peter, but of course, you know, the neglect standard in other cases like dangerous driving, um, you know, negligence, uh, causing death, uh, issues like that. It's been extensively examined by courts. They've refined those um, types of mental elements. They've made sure that they're constitutionally compliant, that you're not punishing, sorry, morally blameworthy people. So there is a way to do that in animal cases that respects, of course, the rights of a person not to be convinced of something they didn't intend to do, but um, also ensures that animals uh, aren't just somehow exempt from conduct that would otherwise be wrongful if it was done to a human. Sure. And it's been a core part of animal justice's platform since its virtual inception that the willful neglect provision needs to be revamped. And there have been, of course, many attempts to do so, which I will not revisit because they just make my blood boil. But on every occasion, you get ridiculous. Oh, we're going to punish people. 
it's just this up and down cry. It's just, it's a, the, the spirit of Bob Sopak just in, invest in my body. And it's like, oh my God, and what are we going to do? And, you know, it's really upsetting, all this nonsense. And I think at a certain point, we've got to realize that either we want to protect animals or we don't. Now, I don't know exactly in this case, um, you know, what the, the basis of the acquittal is. But it seems that carelessness does not amount to recklessness. Like, this is what, can I, re I'm going to read the direct quote, Camille, because there's only one in the article. So I feel comfortable assuming it is a correct quote. Um, this is what the judge said. He sought help from Beagle Paw when he was released from jail. He had owned and cared for beagles for many years. The stresses of his life overtook him and he failed to provide adequate care for the animals. However, carelessness does not amount to recklessness. So um, if that's the only quote we have, I would appeal if I were the Crown. And the reason for that is that the, the judge is doing something that my first year law students do often in their exams, which is they are equating a standard of care with a mental state, and they are not the same thing. Carelessness doesn't amount to recklessness is not the issue. She says he failed to provide adequate care. That's the actus reus proven, done. So all that's, all that's left is to know, was he aware that he was failing to provide adequate care? The reasons why he didn't provide adequate care, stresses of life, these are all motives. Like they have nothing to do with his mental standard. The sole question is, was he aware of the fact that he was not providing the care that was required? And that's all that matters. So as a result, like I'm not convinced that what the judge has stated is correct. And, you know, interestingly, the article points out as well that, um, you know, he was in custody for a couple of days. He was ordered to stay away from the residence where the dogs were. He actually did take some steps to contact a rescue to see if they could foster the dogs for a couple of days. And that didn't work out. So, you know, it seems like he's aware that the dogs have needs and that he is the one responsible for ensuring that those needs are provided for. So, again, that kind of undercuts the judge's ultimate decision in this case that, uh, you know, he was careless but not reckless. And then we can get to the other part. Like, I think that's a mistake, but I'm more troubled, Camille, by the discussion about pain and suffering. Like, again, the, the judge, I, I, I just, I have seen this before. And I have seen this before where judges refuse to find sufficient pain and suffering to convict. And that's one of the things the judge did in this case. Yeah. And this to me, I think is even more troubling. So the judge said the Crown had not met the requirement of proving beyond a reasonable doubt that the Beagles had experienced pain and suffering. And the article says the judge noted that they had no other health issues apart from malnourishment. Apart so what, you need something on top of malnourishment to be able to say that they, that they suffered? And then... The, the article also notes that there was testimony from the province's former chief veterinary officer who reviewed the dog's medical reports and the evidence who said that the animals would have likely been near death. And again, that's consistent with them having a one out of five body score. It's consistent with the appalling state seen in the photos that are included in this article. It's just astounding to me that the judge would um, somehow be able to find a way out of deciding that the animals were suffering. It just seems so obvious. And you're right. I mean, this happens in other cases where judges have done that. Conversely, some judges have said that you can take judicial notice, basically, of the idea that if you kick a dog, you don't need a medical exam to say that that dog suffered. So it really 
operates on this whole range. Well, well, to be honest, what I was going to say about that, Camille, is the reason that this case concerns me is I, I agree with you that like I covered these cases in my book and there is no question that in the 80s and 90s, there was much more reluctance to infer any degree of suffering. That trend is one that's been in the relatively positive side of the ledger in that the more recent cases have tended away from that. They've tended to recognize that if you kick a dog, it's going to suffer. We discussed this in our last case, if you remember, about the German Shepherd being kicked, where I said that's going to be an issue foreshadowing this type of case, right? Because could you imagine? Seriously, Camille, is there any chance Justice Brazil is convicting that guy of kicking the German Shepherd? I'd say zero, zero chance, right? Because like she wouldn't convict in this case. So that is a concern that I have. But I, I, I would say that generally you're correct. The, the, the jurisprudence has been more positive and this case is a bit of a setback. And just to go back to, again, if you want to listen, um, the, the episode I did with uh, uh, Sophie Gaillard as a guest host, I believe it's around episode 15. We talked about the, the 40th anniversary of the Menard case. So it was around uh, 197, it was 2019 we did this uh, episode and it was a really important case because it set the groundwork for how this offense should be treated. And one of the things that Justice Lemaire said, this is what's so unbelievable, is that there's not much I think that's positive about that case. I think it has a lot of flaws, which I'm not getting into here. But one of the positive things Justice Lemaire said is that pain and suffering only has to be beyond the trifling. Everything else would be balanced into the unnecessary part of the equation. So the idea that pain and suffering needs to be proven is is flawed on another level as well. Just a second, Camille, I'm going to get my criminal code. If you have any thoughts, put them in here because I have another point to make. Okay. Well, I'm I'm glad you're getting out that criminal code document. Um, I will just say that I looked up the episode with Sophie and that's episode 14 of Paw and Order. So 61 shows ago, somehow remarkably. All right, Peter's Peter's got his criminal code. I just wanted to say that I'm I'm also particularly interested in what the trial judge was getting on about because Camille, I want to read this to you and see if you can follow um, where I'm going with this. I'm assuming that the neglect, um, um, the neglect charge was laid um, under under section 446. Right. Like, I don't know if there were charges under 445.1 is causing unnecessary suffering. So I'll just read everyone who willfully causes blah, 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 unnecessary pain, suffering or injury. And that's where Justice Lemaire said in the Menard case that the pain and suffering just has to be above the trivial. But Section 446, just listen to this, Camille. Everyone, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but it's always good to refresh based on the language. Everyone commits an offense who... Being the owner or the person having the custody of a domestic animal um, willfully neglects to provide suitable and adequate food, water, shelter, and care. That's what the section provides. So my question to justice—you've got to cause unnecessary suffering, pain, or injury. My, my question to justice, my question to justice Brazil, and I don't know which charges were laid in this case, but like again, it says in the section, it says in the case that there was a failure to provide adequate care. Boom! Like that is the the what the section provides. So the only issue left is willfulness. I hate to break it to Justice Brazil. And again, I don't have the decision in front of me. So I am perfect. It is perfectly positive that I am reading incorrectly from the press. So with that caveat in mind, let me just stress, there is no requirement to prove that an animal suffered for that section. The damage is the failure to provide adequate care, not the suffering. I'm really looking forward to getting a copy of this decision, which, you know, hopefully we will at some point. Um, 
again, we're basing all of our commentary on a news article, but there's definitely some very, very concerning things here. And I think you're right, Peter. I think the trend in cruelty cases has been towards more towards getting these issues right and less towards getting them wrong as we have in past decades. But every now and then a case like this pops up and makes me really, uh, you know, lose faith that we're able to do that. You said it, Camille. I'm with you 100%. Okay, let's move on to our other case of which we have even less information, but let's go for it anyway. <laughs> let's criticize everybody. That never stopped everybody. us from having an opinion, did it? <laughs> I mean, come on, Camille. If uninformed opinions were, for, were forbidden, like podcasts and Twitter would cease to exist, right? <laughs> All right. This is a case out of Nova Scotia, Kings County, and the woman was acquitted of cruelty charges. These, I believe, were all provincially uh, laid charges, so no criminal code charges under the, um, whatever it's the SPCA Act or Animal Protection Act. I can't remember. I think it's the Protection of Animals Act. But yes, who can remember? Yeah, that sounds right. So a judge acquitted a woman who, uh, you know, seems to me, she denies it, but seems to me to have been a puppy mill operator. Mm. So this woman, Karen Robertson, was charged with two counts of allowing an animal to be in distress and one count of disobeying orders issued by the SPCA after they seized 35 dogs from her breeding operation near Wolfville. Okay, so let's let's start with that. 35 dogs, that's a lot of dogs. Uh, you know, quote-unquote reputable breeders, which, you know, again, I take huge issue with that term, but you don't see that kind of level of dogs in cases outside of puppy mills. Typically. Camille, I want to take issue with that. I remember a couple of years back, one of my great memories in animal law was the day I attended an NFAC presentation. And I think that this woman should be treated the same way as, 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 as farmers in Ontario. I don't know if you remember this, Camille. I've used this before. But like, I remember very clearly that Ontario Food and Care or whatever that ridiculous agency is got up and said, what are factory farms anyway? These are family farms. They're not factory farms. And she shows me a picture of like what looks very clearly to be a factory farm. And then she has like a picture of a family in front of it. It's a family farm, not a factory farm. So Camille, I want to be clear. This was not a puppy mill. This was a family puppy operation. That's clearly what it is. Let's let's use the family right terminology. <laughs> oh God, uh, thirty-five animals. Yes, nothing to see here. Well, no. Apparently, at one point she had eighty. So the narrative of this oh, is the story better. describes that quote malicious online statements caused business for her border can border collie kennel to dry up. So she had all these puppies being born and no one to purchase them. And so she ended up with 80 dogs, which is a lot of dogs. That is a lot of dogs. No one should have that many dogs. You can't care for that many dogs. That's just an impossible scenario. So she started working to decrease the number of dogs. And the judge described this effort as Herculean. And she got the number of dogs down by more than a half. And then the SPCA came to inspect her and they issued five orders with 44 directives that they wanted her to comply with. And many of these directors included uh, reference to the Canadian Kennel Club's code of practice for kennel operations and also referenced the standard of care for cats and dogs, which is a provincial regulation. Now, what's interesting about this is that the judge ultimately said that those orders directing her to comply with Uh, code of practices, code of practice um, directives were not lawfully given. They were ambiguous and they were unnecessary. And uh, the judge said that the Animal Protection Act in Nova Scotia doesn't incorporate this kennel club code. And so it can't be used as a lawful authority under which to issue orders. So that's interesting, Peter. Sure is, Camille. I mean, I've been told by industries on repeated occasion that these codes are the greatest thing 
ever. They provide us with a national understanding, my favorite term, by the way, a national understanding of the way in which we should care for animals. Um, and that, you know, every time we confront a farmer on Twitter, we are told about all the rules they must comply with. Oh, as it turns out, these rules, you know, as you and I have suspected for years, may not actually be rules. They're rules with quotation marks because you can't actually enforce them. And I don't see why the kennel cub is any different than any other NFAC code of practice, which cannot be enforced. Yeah, we've obviously been extremely critical of the codes over the years. And I think for good reason, like we, we are seeing judges grapple with their use in law enforcement situations. And this is a clear rejection of those codes as a legal standard, which, you know, frankly, in many ways is very appropriate. These are codes that are created by industry organizations for the benefit of industry. Um, it might have been different if this code had been specifically adopted into statute, which, you know, again, we've got huge problems with that, uh, with, you know, private organizations essentially setting what is the legal standard. But in this case, the judge is saying you just can't rely on those industry codes. Yeah, I also love the way it was the malicious online statements that caused everything to go awry. Like, God forbid, like the criticism caused her family planning unit to go awry and suddenly increase the number of dogs to 80. And of course, she couldn't handle it at that point, despite her Herculean efforts. I'm wondering where the judge's sympathy lay in this particular case. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of disputes here over the evidence. The judge didn't like the evidence presented by the SPCA and rejected much of it and found that some of the inspectors overstated um, efforts that they were engaged in. So, you know, again, we don't want to comment too much on the particular issues involved in this case. It's really difficult without being in that courtroom and having heard all the evidence to say that this was the right or it was the wrong ruling. But I think the, you know, the issue about the codes is important. And the fundamental fact that somebody in Nova Scotia is still legally permitted to have 35 to 85 dogs in a breeding operation is just, frankly, bananas That's, to me. that's like, really the core this of me, this, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's it's a cry, I think, for the legislature to step in and, and regulate dog breeding and prevent people from having this many animals because it's obviously not good for the animals. Like, that's what I think is the problem. We've talked about this many, many times, and I'll just go back to the way in which the legislation is willing to allocate risk. And the fact is, we would never allow this with children or any human beings. I mean, forget about 80. We wouldn't allow, like, seven or eight. But it's like, whenever there's risk, the risk is borne by the animals. That's what's so upsetting about the legislation. And we're seeing that whether it's the provincial legislation or the federal legislation, the animals are at risk and the judge is effectively saying she did the best she could and the animals should bear that risk. And what troubles me is when you're dealing with vulnerable beings, if we really care about them, the, 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 sup, the imposition of risk needs to go the other way. The risk needs to be put on the owner. You want to breed 80 puppies, you bear the risk. Like, I don't see why the animal should bear the risk. And some of the things that are stated, the idea of, oh, well, there's no directive that animals have water at all times, despite SPCA insistence. Um, you know, frankly, I think animals should have access to water at all times. The ability to like provide water for them seems to me to be pretty, pretty important. Like the idea, whether she took sufficient steps, which is what they call due diligence, right? To show whether water was present. What's interesting is we, we're seeing the same sort of language that we saw in that case that we've referred to many, many times before on this show. And of course, as I try to 
remember the name of the case from Alberta. Mulback. Mulback. Sorry, I got it. I was a little late, but I the got it. The infamous Mulback. Right? It's the same idea. You can't prove they were dehydrated. Well, what we can prove is there was no water. And what we can prove is that the statute says they should have water. But the judge inserts this other little criteria of they need to be dehydrated. And I'm like, that's what undermines the utility of these regulations. Because quite frankly, the SPCA cannot be on the scenes at all times. They can come to the scene, see that it's problematic, try to do something to rectify it. And then the accused just comes to court and says, well, they had water. They weren't dehydrated. Like they had access to water. And I'm like, well, the, 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 the reason for imposing these things is designed, as far as I can tell, to make sure that the risk of harm to animals is placed on the owner as it should be. It shouldn't be placed on the backs of the animals. That is just the wrong way to think about risk. And it is a consistent theme in animal law jurisprudence, whether it's live sheep export, which is my biggest, this idea of, well, we're going to try to mitigate risk, even though it's the animals that bear all that risk. Um, I'm really concerned about these types of decisions. I'm not saying that what the judge has done in this case is necessarily wrong, uh, because I think some aspects of it might well be borne out, given the way in which the legislation is, is written. But I will say that like that is one of the flaws with animal law generally, is that we leave too much risk to be borne by the animals, when really the idea that you can breed 80 puppies and put them into a situation where you can't care for them is ludicrous. That's a commercial operation. It should not be done. This isn't some woman, right, who got into crazy situation and couldn't take care of her dog because she was suffering from COVID, right? What we're talking about is a commercial breeding operation and the standards should be a freaking lot higher and they're not. It's the reverse. The standards are higher for individual owners than they are for any commercial entity and that just gets my blood boiling, Camille. I can tell. I, I'm seeing Peter on Zoom and he's like jumping up and down in this chair. He's getting all exercised. So I think we need to change the topic before you, uh, you know, blow a gasket. <laughs> well, that's the term, blow a gasket. But listeners love it when I blow a gasket, Camille. We get mail all the time <laughs> saying, blow, Peter, blow. <laughs> all right, Peter, let's talk about our last criminal animal cruelty case. This is the case of the Queen and Chen out of Alberta. Now, we've got some interesting things to say about this one, but uh, just to first engage a little bit with the facts and tell you what happened in this case, Chen is a case where a young man was um, essentially reported by his roommate for having viciously beaten uh, a dog that he owned, a husky type dog. Um, so the roommate heard the dog yelping upstairs, heard what sounded like dog beating, um, went out on the street, told people about it. The police eventually were called and they attended and he admitted to the police that he had been beaten, beating the dog. Um, so the dog sustained some injuries. There was also evidence in the case that the dog had had previously broken ribs, which uh, was concerning. That didn't form part of the charges or the conviction against him, but it was an important factor. So he ended up pleading guilty to this offense. Uh, he admitted that he'd done so. And the question was really what the appropriate sentence for him should be. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in the end, um, his sentence was... You know, depends on your view of reasonable, but it was largely prohibition order combination of uh, uh, um, um, long term of probation and certain affiliated conditions. But there was uh, a jail sentence. And I'm sorry, Camille, it's escaping me the amount. It was fairly low. Was it 90 days? Yeah, it was 90 days and it was to be served intermittently. So that means served on weekends. And the point of doing that is so a person can still 
hold a job and you know do other things that are important to their economic well-being. Correct. So, and yeah. Peter, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the prohibition order was ten years. Yeah, it was ten you years. Another animal for ten years, which is right. good, and that was on consent apparently. So the issue there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and so he appealed because he wasn't happy with the jail time, and his counsel felt that it should be a conditional sentence order, which means house arrest essentially. And the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench, which heard this appeal, agreed with him, and uh, they they imposed instead a conditional sentence order. So instead of spending 90 days in jail, he'd spend 90 days under house arrest. Now, the Crown, not pleased with this, the Crown wanted jail time and felt that it was an error of law, that uh, he did not receive jail time. And so they successfully sought leave to appeal to the Alberta Court of Appeal, which is where this case is now headed for arguments about the sentence. And just let me say two things. Um, One about the, the decision itself which I don't think necessarily plays in to the appeal, but I want to mention it anyway because it ties back to something we talked about earlier. Um, And secondly, just by saying how rare this is, um, the leave to appeal uh, motion, so essentially, let me put it to explain to non-lawyers, you only get one free appeal. That's the way it works. Effectively, regardless of where you appeal from, you only get what's called one appeal. Everybody gets an appeal in almost every situation. You get one. When you want to appeal a second, time, and let's be clear, the Crown is trying to appeal for a second time, although it didn't appeal the original order. It doesn't really matter. Anyone who wants to appeal from the appeal has to seek leave to do so, and leave is not granted readily. There's got to be something important about the case, and I think it's interesting that the Court of Appeal said that there was something important to decide here, which is how to sentence for animal cruelty cases, which has never really reached the Court of Appeal in any province in any substantial way. So maybe you want to discuss that, but I have another point I wanted to make just about the Queen's Bench decision. Yeah, no, go ahead. I I think that's well said. It's it's significant that this is going up on appeal and significant that the court apparently thought that this was important enough to actually consider. So we're, you know, we're happy about that in a sense. So I just want to point out that when you're sentencing for offenses, there are lots of different factors that go into sentencing. But the main the main two factors, honestly, in anything, and that's stated by Section 718.1 of the Criminal Code, is that you have to focus on the gravity of the offense and the responsibility of the offender. Now, the responsibility of the offender in this case was as high as it gets. He was pleading to intentional effect of torture of the animal, really. It was really high-level cruelty. But the gravity of the offense stuff is interesting, and the Queen's Bench judge doesn't get into this in depth. But the only thing, what troubles me, is that the only reference to the harm to the animal, Camille, is in paragraph five of the decision. And he says, yes, the treatment was reprehensible, but then goes on to say that cinnamon was seized by the authorities, recovered fully, and has been adopted by a new owner. Like that just troubles me, Camille, for the reasons we discussed earlier. Yeah, again, completely irrelevant to what the dog um, experienced. Yeah, and just shows, I think, a lack of nuance. There's this idea that, well, animals, there is this idea, I think, in members of the public, Camille, correct me if I'm wrong, that animals, not being as sophisticated as humans, don't have that type of trauma. Like, if you, could you imagine, could you just, just imagine for a moment, Camille, let's just imagine, okay, that this involves a domestic violence case, okay? And imagine, imagine, Camille, that the judge were to say, well, Mrs. X, I'm just going to use the words, okay? Was removed from the house and has found new lodging, okay? 
recovered fully and has moved on with her life. Could you imagine a judge saying that? Like the appeal would be so quick and like that judge would be up on charges before the Canadian Judicial Council. I really think that's true, an investigation. But with animals, it's all fine. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's like, well, they recovered fully and they've moved on. I'm like, no, they haven't. There's no way they've recovered fully. Again, anybody who has ever dealt with an animal who has been through trauma knows that that's just not true. But there is this belief that, you know, you give an animal a brush. I had to get the brush in, Camille. You give an animal a brush and it excuses all other sins. And I I just think that's flawed. Yeah, and I think anyone who has a cat or a dog or a rabbit knows what those animals experience for the most part when you take them to the freaking vet, right? Like a place designed to help them and protect them. They don't like that for the most part. Many animals hate going to the vet and they're traumatized. Uh, A friend of mine has two adorable dogs and out walking with them and the dogs didn't want to go down this one particular route because they remember that years ago they used to have to go that way to go to a groomer. They didn't really like going to the groomer. Like animals have long memories. They don't want to experience negative stimuli and this can affect them in a myriad of ways for the rest of their lives. Yeah, and their owners who get those animals. Let me tell you, I, I love my dog, but my God, it's just like every time somebody comes to the house, he goes, bananas and it's really hard to train them out of it and it's i'm convinced you know connected to to what happened to him before he came to us even though he now lives like the greatest life in world history especially with his parents home all the time due to covid like this dog has never been so happy doesn't matter it doesn't erase the trauma now um camille we mentioned there's a tie-in to the our earlier discussion i talked about how busy i was and when this chen case came out like literally some nonprofit organization just browbeat me into trying to get involved in this case. Like it was literally day and night harassment saying we need to intervene in this case. And and I, for some reason I accepted Camille. I don't understand how that happened. That's really funny. So what Peter's alluding to is that animal justice is going to seek leave to intervene in this case. And we think it's important that the court hears perspective of us on, you know, what principles of sentencing do actually matter to animals, this idea of deterrence and renunciation, how does that play into animal cruelty sentences? But what Peter gets wrong is that it was actually kind of the other way around. I emailed this to Peter and he's like, we need to intervene. What? What? (laughs) So he brought this upon himself. Don't feel bad for him, folks. I will not stand for such slander, Camille. Um, In all seriousness, um, we're excited to try and get involved. And before anybody gets their hopes up, uh, intervening at the Court of Appeal is not like intervening at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court generally allows everybody to intervene because it's a court of national jurisdiction and they love hearing from other perspectives. I'm intervening on a case there um, in in the spring. But like, it's hard to intervene at the Court of Appeal. Not impossible, but the jurisprudence makes it difficult. But we're going to do our darndest to get in there because quite frankly, what what I think is going on in this case is you've got the Crown on one side saying slap them hard. You know, animal cruelty offenses need to be treated seriously. Bing, 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 jail sentence. Um, I'm with them on the serious part. I'm not necessarily with them on the jail part. Um, And then, of course, you have the accused saying the primary thing is rehabilitation and care for the offender. And I'm like, no one is talking about the animals and someone needs to bring a lot of this to bear. And we've got several points, including that part about cinnamon recovering fully, that we want to bring to the attention of of the the, the court. And I'm hoping we will get leave to intervene. And I just should should point out, Camille, since this is a Paw and Order podcast, that um, this is really a team effort 
effort. Uh, the staff lawyers at uh, Animal Justice and Camille, of course, are helping uh, craft these submissions, as is um, 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 a, a couple of lawyers in Toronto. Uh, my co-counsel, uh, who is helping me with the primary submissions, is Chris Rudnicki, who is a, a wonderful appellate lawyer in Toronto, and we're also being helped by some other volunteers. Yes, Amanda Worth, who, again, is a criminal lawyer in Toronto and has just been tremendously helpful on this case so far. So, yeah, we're really grateful to have a good team working on this. We will keep you posted on what happens. Indeed. All right. Well, we had a lot to say about this. <laughs> Went on <laughs> the quite main some topic, time. Didn't we? Whew. You know what, Camille? We haven't done a main topic in a while. We've done a lot of interviews as of late, and it feels good to get in there and really dig into something. I liked it. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. That was very thought-provoking, including for me. <laughs> Heroes and Zeros. All right. Well, Peter, you know what time it is. It's time for everybody's part, favorite part of the show. Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. We've got uh, some good ones. One that ties into one of our uh, stories of the day and one that doesn't. Why don't you start, Camille, with our hero? <laughs> I really love our hero. <laughs> It's, uh, you know, it's a nice, light and positive story for a change. So uh, our hero is Samuel March. He's a UK lawyer in training who has created what's believed to be the country's first vegan barrister's wig. So Canadians listening to this will not necessarily huh? have an appreciation for what a barrister's wig is. Huh? because It's not something that we currently have to wear in court. We used to years ago, but in the UK and Australia and I think New Zealand, New Zealand too. also, yeah. A lot of old Commonwealth countries, uh, there's an ancient legal tradition where barristers wear not only the penguin suit robes, but they also wear a horse hair wig. I have to be honest, now, Camille, Sammy I'm in, I'm quite in favor of the wig, not the horse hair, but as, as someone who resides among the follically challenged port part of the population, <laughs> I, would, I would love to see. That way, if you and I went to court again, it would sort of even us up a little bit, Camille. We wouldn't, the court wouldn't be overwhelmed by your beautiful blonde flowing locks and my shiny bald head. Instead, we'd both be equal under this, this mop of white, white mess, right? Uh, so I'm, I'm in favor now that there's a vegan option. I want to bring it back. <laughs> well, maybe you can start lobbying the courts to re-implement this time. rule. It's time. Oh, I'm dying. It was funny. <laughs> feel bad for you. The great equalizer, barrister's wigs. I'm telling you. <laughs> Actually, I do, I do, I have to say, I kind of like the barrister's robes for that reason, because you don't have to think about what you're going to wear to court. You just wear your outfit. It's great. You don't have to spend time thinking, oh, is like, what does this outfit say to the court? Is this too, uh, you know, fun, not professional enough? It's just, you put on the black robe. It's awesome. Yeah, you say that, but like the, the women's robes are a little, even still are a little more stylish. They get a little bit of extra style in there because they get to, to wear, you know, a variety of lower garments and they can jazz up the tabs a bit with the lace stuff. So it's like, the, and they get to wear the shoes. It's like, I, I'm jealous a little bit because like, uh, you know. Okay, let me just you, say. You don't want to see my legs. Let me be clear. You don't want to really see my legs. And, and I, I, I'm being a bit facetious because I, I don't think it is. But I will say that I've seen a lot of women do great things with the robes. Oh, yeah. You can totally dress them up. Wear some fun heels, some fun tights, whatever. Um, you're supposed to wear just like black 
shoes. So you got to be careful there still. Yeah. I've heard of judges like kicking people out of the courthouse for wearing brown shoes. And with I, I've, seen, I've, seen, I've seen that not happen with some pretty cool shoes. And to be honest, I'm all for it. I'm like, bring on the footwear. Well, let me just add in the interest of, you know, gender equity here, Peter, is mm. that you could wear tights or a skirt if yeah, you wanted was, to or I was, heels. Nothing's stopping you. That. You can get the frilly lace tabs. I was getting at that, but I'm like, I just, you don't want to see my legs, Camille. That would be a crime against <laughs> humanity. It's bad enough you have to focus on the bald head. So anyway, I, I'm, let me just say, as I said, like any advantage the women can get in court, they deserve it. Believe me for the shit they have to put up with. So yes. Yeah. All right. Well, back to Samuel March. <laughs> so Sam is a, a barrister in London or a, a barrister in trainee. So he's, he's currently a paralegal right now and he's going through the training process of becoming called to the bar as a barrister, I think, and not a solicitor. And he decided, because he's an ethical vegan and has been for ages, and in fact, he does a lot of work with uh, our friends at Advocates for Animals in the UK, the UK's first animal advocacy law firm. I think he's a paralegal there. So he decided to create a hemp-based barrister's wig. He went out, he designed this himself, he commissioned some help from a company that specializes in this kind of stuff. And he's, uh, you know, he's got a prototype right now and he's planning to ensure this is available commercially so that anybody who wants it and doesn't want to have to wear a horsehair wig can access. It. And I just think this is so cool and a tremendous idea. Love it. Love it. Um, again, we've talked in a variation of this, but I mean, anytime you can infuse, because, you know, the funny thing is everybody says that symbols have meaning and they really do. Like they really have a meaning and they are a statement of who we are as a society. And like, I am waiting, Camille, I have a hope that in my lifetime, I doubt it will be me, but I am hoping that the first, you know, ethical vegan will get appointed to the Supreme Court. It's inevitable that it's going to happen, I think. I just don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime, but inevitably, just like just like what's going to happen, just to give an example, right? The first Aboriginal justice will be appointed. I don't know when that's going to happen, but it's going to happen. And when that Aboriginal justice is appointed, I can guarantee you, almost certainly, because this happened in New Zealand, where the Maori justice was appointed, and the Maori justice insisted on a different form of judicial robe, right? They wanted to alter it to reflect their culture in a sense, right? And I, I'm all for it. I think that symbols mean things. So I think they should be able, you know, it's not like everybody has to take the red Santa suit and just go with it. So like I am waiting for the first ethical vegan to go up and say, look, I'll be on the Supreme Court, but I'm not wearing those robes. Like I'm not wearing the ermine, you know, fur robes. So like change it. And, and I think that will happen, just like this horsehair thing is done in the UK. Yeah, I think it, change is inevitable, and that's super awesome. So, yeah, way to go, Sam. Way to go, uh, Sam. This is amazing. Apparently, tons of people have already contacted him, and not even people who are vegan, but people who just don't want to wear horsehair wigs, because yeah. why would you? Yeah. So, I'm yeah, I hope of ordering really takes one, off and becomes the default. Real, maybe we should order one for the show. <laughs> like, we don't have to wear it in court, but it would be hilarious. Like, every time we do Pawn Order, we can support Sam by wearing the wig. Come on, Camille. Okay, I'm in. I'm in. that sounds fun. The only problem is that it's 650 pounds. Oh, wow. Okay, well, let's just uh, amend that. I don't know if the show budget can handle it. If we have any sponsors that want to see us in wigs, we are open. We are open, but we will even call it a sponsor. Sponsored segment. Camille and Peter wear the non-horsehair wigs. I love it. I, it would make me feel, let's just say this show would get 10% better just wearing the wig, I have to say. 
<laughs> Certainly 10% sillier. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. For every hero, there is, of course, a zero. And God, just to tie into one of the themes of our early part in the show, there is no more fitting zero. The hardest part of this story, Camille, was deciding who should get the zero. It's really a multiple uh, case of zeros, but we're going to go with Kijiji. Kijiji is the zero because Kijiji continues to be involved, in my opinion, as a party, really, honestly, at least a criminally negligent party to the sale of puppy mill infected dogs. That's right. So we spoke earlier about how all these people are going online, going to Kijiji, Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, whatever, but mostly Kijiji, it seems, to find puppies to buy because breeders have long wait lists and shelters are running low on dogs. So as a result, all these people are buying puppies from essentially puppy mills and are finding a variety of health issues with various puppies that they've purchased as a result. So this is very common when you're buying from a puppy mill breeder and, and often common when you're buying from a quote unquote reputable breeder as well, simply because breed standards bake cruelty into the DNA of many different types of dogs. But uh, in the, the case of a, the global story that we're talking about here, uh, there's an alleged puppy mill in Markham, Ontario, that's been selling sick puppies on Kijiji to unsuspecting consumers. I don't know why they're unsuspecting, like everyone should know by now that you don't buy dogs on Kijiji. But, you know, to people's credit, they think governments are probably watching out for them. And if it's legal to buy a dog on Kijiji, then it's probably fine to do that. And people don't usually appreciate how negligent and hands-off our governments are when it comes to animals. Yeah, they're really so, hands-off. Yeah. And with the the thing that bothers me about the story is that the, the consumer is painted as the victim of this story, not the animals. It's the consumer, right? This is, it's scammers. And they're, and it's like, oh my God. And I, 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 I had all the, it's just like, yeah, I feel some sympathy for the buyer simply because I can, it's traumatic to go through that where your dog dies of illness. Like I do get that, but like on a certain level, like my sympathy only goes so far. Like really, again, you are supporting this industry and take some responsibility for what you did. Yeah. If you don't do the bare minimum of research before you decide to become a dog owner, I mean, that's on you. That's on you. Absolutely. So yeah, the, this this woman purchased a dog who ended up having parvo, which is a, a virus that's often transmitted among puppies. It is easily prevented with vaccinations, but it seems like these dogs perhaps did not have those vaccinations. So, you know, she paid $9,000 for this dog and his medical bill and is now upset that she can't reach the breeder and can't get reimbursed for this. Gee, what a surprise, Camille. The breeder has gone rogue. Mm, shocking. Yeah. And, you know, to go back to the red flags, I spoke about earlier on about being able to see the premises, you know, the person having a website, being able to meet the mother. This person admits now that there were red flags and, uh, you know, they asked to see the mother and they were told that the mother was uh, their 81 year old mother's dog. And so they couldn't and they didn't really push that further. It's just it's an unfortunate situation, but I think people need to start taking responsibility for this. Uh, Kijiji's the zero, but people need to understand if you're embarking on this journey of dog ownership, you've got to do your research because the government's not protecting you or animals. Like Kijiji, it's very simple. Don't sell animals on your website, period. Like just get out of Don't the do business. Don't it. Should be illegal. Like, just get out of the business, right? If if people want to sell, make them put up or or at least at the very least right? Because I think the answer is never. But if I were to support an intermediate step, Kijiji can put in codes of responsibility that must be met. And if they're not met, you can't sell. But no, Kijiji's just going to wash their hands of it, take their profits and move on. Yeah, it's disgusting on so many levels. So 
Zero to Kijiji. Zero to Kijiji. Camille, that was an absolutely delightful episode. Uh, I was a little worried about getting up this morning because I was very tired, but boy, we got inspired by some fun topics and that was just a hell of a lot of fun. I hope listeners enjoyed it as much as we did. Yeah, I hope so too. It was a really legally kind of focused and heavy episode, a lot of nuances of the law. So hopefully that wasn't too far over the heads of many people, but it was a good one. We did our best. We did our best. All right. uh, That wraps up another episode of Paw and Order. Great fun being with you all here today and we'll We'll see you next time. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jess L. Reed. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Nickerson. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!